Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm Roger Pilon. I'm the director of Cato Center for Constitutional Studies and your host uh, this afternoon. We're here to mark the publication of a new book uh, by an old friend, Tim Sandifer, uh, The Conscience of the Constitution, The Declaration of Independence, and The Right to Liberty, which is available outside. And we'll, uh, Tim will be glad to sign it for you if you'd like, uh, and it's available at a discount. Um, this is the third book of Tim's that uh, the Cato Institute has published, uh, so we must like his work. Uh, the first was uh, The Cornerstone of Liberty, Property Rights in the 21st Century, uh, setting forth the uh, parlous state of uh, that fundamental institution. And his second book for us was uh, entitled The Right to Earn a Living, Economic Freedom and the Law, uh, documenting the equally parlous state of that fundamental right. Um, the book we'll be discussing uh, today, however, is especially important because it goes to the heart and soul of the Constitution. Uh, as its title suggests, the conscience of the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence. If I may make a personal point here by way of background, uh, I joined Cato and established the Center for Constitutional Studies uh, at the end of the Reagan administration uh, that I was serving precisely to advocate and advance the thesis of this book. So for me, it's an especially important uh, piece of uh, work. At the, at the time, uh, legal positivism had long been the reigning theory of law among both the then dominant uh, liberals and the ascendant conservatives from Lawrence Tribe and John Ely to Robert Bork uh, and um, Antonin Scalia on the right. Uh, the Declaration was thought to be an important political document uh, but it was said to have little bearing on the Constitution or on constitutional interpretation. Our task, therefore, was to change the thinking about this, to argue that the Declaration set forth the Founders' moral, political, and legal philosophy, their philosophy of government, and especially their philosophy of political legitimacy. And it was crucial to understand that philosophy, we argued, if we were to understand the Constitution and especially to faithfully interpret and apply its often broad language. Well, we've worked toward that end over the years since, and I'm pleased to say that the debate, including in the courts, has moved slowly in that direction. And in the book we're here to discuss today, Tim has drawn all of that together in a single accessible place for which we are deeply uh, thankful. So let me now introduce Tim, and uh, he'll take it from here. Uh, he'll discuss the book for about 20 minutes or so, after which Professor Arcus will offer another 20 minutes of comments. We'll then have a brief response from Tim and perhaps from Hadley as well, uh, after which we'll open it up to, to the audience for questions and then go upstairs to the George M. Yeager Conference Center for lunch. Uh, for those of you who uh, are keeping schedules or have hours to bill, uh, we'll be wrapped up by about 1.30, and uh, we'll be through with lunch by about 2 o'clock. All right, Tim Sandifer is a principal attorney at the Pacific Legal Foundation, and he heads the Foundation's Economic Liberty Project, which protects entrepreneurs against intrusive government regulation. He's successfully challenged occupational licensing 
uh, restrictions in uh, several states, including California, Oregon, and Missouri. Um, he um, uh, represented uh, the plaintiffs in Merrifield v. Lockyer, a major economic liberty decision out of the Ninth Circuit. He also works uh, to oppose eminent domain abuse and has litigated important cases in that area in California, Florida, Missouri, and elsewhere. In late 2011, he was named Appellate Lawyer of the Week for his work challenging the constitutionality of the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, otherwise known as Obamacare. He um, uh, is the author of some 40 scholarly articles on subjects ranging from eminent domain and economic liberty to copyright uh, and legal issues of slavery in the Civil War. He's an adjunct professor of law at the McGeorge uh, School of Law uh, in Sacramento. He's a graduate of Hillsdale College and of the Chapman University School of Law. Please welcome Tim Sandifer. Thank you very much. Uh, it's really an honor to be here and share the, share the, the stage with uh, Hadley Arcus, whose work I have admired so very much. If you haven't read his book, The Return of George Sutherland, uh, you absolutely must get a copy and read it. Um, on March 26, 1860, Frederick Douglass gave the most important speech of his life. It's not among his most famous. In fact, most biographers kind of skim over it in a few sentences. But it was the turning point in his career, and it was an important transition in the history of the American Constitution. The speech was entitled, The Constitution of the United States. Is it pro-slavery or anti-slavery? And in answering that question, anti-slavery, Douglas was signaling a new phase in the abolitionist movement. Previously, abolitionists led by William Lloyd Garrison had denounced the Constitution as a pact with hell and burned it at July 4th meetings because they considered it an essentially pro-slavery document. Garrison essentially agreed with the slave owners of the South that the Constitution protected slavery as a property right, and therefore he damned it as evil and insisted that the North should secede from the Union. He printed the motto, No Union with Slaveholders, on the masthead of his newspaper, The Liberator. At first, Douglas was attracted to this view. After escaping slavery, he spoke at his first anti-slavery meeting at Garrison's invitation, and it was Garrison who helped persuade him to write his famous autobiography. But by 1860, Douglas and others were having doubts about Garrison's anti-constitutionalism. A group of legal scholars led by people like Lysander Spooner, Samuel Chase, William Jay, Charles Sumner, Joel Tiffany, and especially former President John Quincy Adams, had formulated an interpretation of the Constitution based on the classical liberal principles of the Declaration of Independence. In their view, the Constitution made at most temporary accommodations for slavery, placing it in what Lincoln would call the course of ultimate extinction. Some of these authors went even further, arguing that the Constitution was incompatible with slavery so that slavery was already unconstitutional. It was after reading these writers that Douglas became persuaded that the Constitution did not protect slavery. Instead, as he put it in a later speech, interpreted as it ought to be interpreted, the Constitution is a glorious liberty document. Now, the intellectual godfather of these anti-slavery constitutionalists was John Quincy Adams, who argued that the Constitution must be interpreted in the light of the Declaration. 
The Declaration, he said, was essentially a constitution of the United States. It constituted the people of the United States as a single people, the one people who had dissolved the political bands that connected them with Great Britain. And the Declaration thereby created the American nation, but not on the basis of accident, historical circumstance, or ethnicity, but on the basis of certain principles. The principles articulated in the Declaration, that all men are created equal, endowed with certain rights that no just government may deprive them of. Independence was declared, wrote Adams, in one of the most popular pamphlets of the 1830s. The colonists were proclaimed to be one people renouncing all allegiance to the British crown. Thenceforth, their charter was the Declaration of Independence. Their rights, the natural rights of mankind. Their government, founded upon the self-evident truths proclaimed in the Declaration. The Constitution was the complement to the Declaration of Independence, founded upon the same principles, carrying them into practical execution, and forming with it one entire system of government." End quote. Unfortunately, Adams noted some lawyers and politicians under the influence of the English writer William Blackstone failed to understand the radicalism of this new idea of government power. And in fact, Blackstone is often cited today as a legal authority for interpreting the Constitution by people who ignore what contempt many of the founders had for some of Blackstone's views. Right. Jefferson, for example, said that Blackstone was perverting the rising generation of legal scholars. James Wilson denounced Blackstone. In 1803, St. George Tucker published an entire fifth volume to his edition of Blackstone, devoted entirely to disproving all the things Blackstone said about government sovereignty. Blackstone believed that government is essentially inherently sovereign, so that every government contains within it, quote, supreme, irresistible, absolute power, which can, quote, do everything that is not naturally impossible, end quote. While government can grant certain privileges to people, like freedom of speech, those privileges can be revoked whenever the government considers it necessary to do so, in Blackstone's view. This was also the vision shared by the pro-slavery intellectuals. Basing their view on Blackstone's concept of absolute sovereignty, they argued that the states were sovereign, not the federal government, and that states had supreme, irresistible, absolute power they could choose whether to grant rights to people or not. As John C. Calhoun, the most famous of the pro-slavery thinkers, put it, quote, it is a great and dangerous error to suppose that all people are naturally entitled to liberty. It is a reward to be earned, not a blessing to be gratuitously lavished on all alike, a reward reserved for the intelligent, the patriotic, the virtuous, and the deserving, and not a boon to be bestowed on people too ignorant, degraded, and vicious to be capable either of appreciating or of enjoying it, end quote. Now, this states' rights theory was obviously contrary to the Declaration, which presumes that all people are basically free and that they then create a government which is subservient to their rights. The Declaration, wrote Adams, quote, proclaims the natural rights of man and the constituent power of the people to be the only sources of legitimate power. State sovereignty is a mere argument of power without regard to right, a mere reproduction of the omnipotence of the British Parliament in another form, and therefore not only inconsistent with, but directly in opposition to the principles of the Declaration of Independence, end quote. The idea that government was sovereign and that rights are just permissions that the government gives to people was, he said, vanquished by the Declaration. If the nation was sovereign, and that sovereignty was limited by the principles of the Declaration, then not only could states have no legitimate authority to secede from the Union, 
but they could not claim power to reduce a group of people to perpetual slavery. Adams therefore became one of the bravest voices against slavery in the Congress. Frederick Douglass learned to read by reading uh, uh, Adams' speeches. Adams mentored the rising generation of abolitionists, including Sumner, who you remember was caned on the floor of the US Senate for his wonderful speech, The Barbarism of Slavery. And William Seward, who became Secretary of State and wrote the first biography of John, John Quincy Adams. And of course, Abraham Lincoln, who served in Congress the same term that John Quincy Adams died on the floor of the House of Representatives. These people built on Adams' constitutional argument, an anti-slavery theory that had two basic principles. First, the nation was sovereign, not the states. And therefore, Americans were Americans first and citizens of states only secondarily. And second, state, the rights of national citizenship include the natural rights of all mankind, as well as the Constitution's enumerated rights and the rights inherited from the English common law. The Declaration's reference to the one people and the Constitution's reference to we the people of the United States did not exclude blacks. So all American people, black as well as white, qualified as Americans entitled to national citizenship and no state could justly exclude black citizens or reduce blacks to slavery or otherwise violate their rights. Now the core of this theory was that the Declaration is the pole star for understanding the Constitution, that it is the conscience of the Constitution, and its principles meant that liberty, not democratic self-government, was the core value of our political system, liberty. Pro-slavery thinkers obviously rejected all of this. They held that people were primarily citizens of states and that their rights depended not on national citizenship but on state citizenship. States could choose to grant or to withhold rights from individuals to suit the needs of society. The pro-slavery constitutionalists rejected that declaration, calling it, quote, a self-evident lie. John, Quincy, or, um, John C. Calhoun said in the Senate, there is not a word of truth in it. They insisted that all men are created equal really only meant white men. This, of course, was the view of Chief Justice Taney in the Dred Scott opinion of 1857. That opinion did not surprise people like Frederick Douglass. What he objected to was that the older generation of abolitionists like Garrison agreed with it. They too believed that the Constitution was a pro-slavery document and that blacks could not be included among the we the people referred to in the Constitution. So when Douglas announced his change of opinion, he was embracing a reading of, of the Constitution that was a stark challenge to the pro-slavery legal establishment, but also to the abolitionist movement. The Garrisonian doctrine of no union with slaveholders, said Douglas, leaves the slaves and their masters to fight their own battles in their own way. This I hold to be an abandonment of the great idea with which that society started. It started to free the slave. It ends by leaving the slave to free himself, end quote. So Douglas and his allies instead advanced what we might call, copying Hayek, the Constitution of Liberty. And it was these men who would form a new Republican Party that would triumph in the Civil War. When that war ended, these men saw the opportunity to amend the Constitution to ensure that it would be forever interpreted the way that they interpreted it. Now this was a little bit of a touchy subject for them because in their view, no amendment was necessary. They thought their interpretation of the Constitution had been right from the beginning. And then some, like Sumner, thought that abolishing slavery was enough. Eventually, though, they realized that the, a new 14th Amendment was necessary to ensure that the Declaration's principles would be enshrined in the Constitution forever. 
And that amendment encompasses anti-slavery constitutionalism perfectly. First, all people are citizens of the nation primarily, and only secondarily of the states. In fact, states are stripped of the last essence of sovereignty since they no longer have the authority to decide who their own citizens are. Secondly, Americans are entitled to protection for the privileges or immunities of national citizenship, which include their natural rights, their constitutional rights, and their common law rights. Nor may any state deprive them of liberty without due process of law or of equal treatment. This amendment constitutionalizes anti-slavery theory, a fundamentally classical liberal, or as we would call it today, libertarian political philosophy. It prioritizes freedom over democracy as the basic constitutional value, and it promises federal protection against state abuses. Now, I want to emphasize this point, especially given the recent article in the New York Times profiling Senator Rand Paul. Libertarians have a better claim to the legacy of the anti-slavery movement than either conservatives or liberals today. The principles of the anti-slavery constitutionalists rooted in the Declaration of Independence, which triumphed in the ratification of the 14th Amendment, were libertarian principles. Unfortunately, that amendment was soon undermined. And as the 20th century dawned, a new generation of political philosophers abandoned the idea of the Declaration and the thinking of the abolitionists and returned to the obsolete states' rights model that held that states could do anything they were not expressly barred from doing and that individual rights are privileges that the government may grant or withhold the, to suit the needs of society. In 1903, the University of Chicago political science professor Charles Miriam, the first political science professor at Chicago, wrote that, quote, from the standpoint of modern political science, the slaveholders were right in declaring that liberty can be given only to those who have the political capacity to use it, end quote. The profession of political science, he said, had, quote, abandoned the Declaration's principle that liberty is a natural right and had come to hold that freedom is created by the government as a sort of privilege. Rights, he said, quote, are considered to have their source not in nature but in law. Given their rejection of natural rights, progressive thinkers elevated democracy over liberty as the central constitutional value. The Constitution, in their view, was about enforcing the will of the people, not about preserving the blessings of liberty. Among the first targets of these modern thinkers was the legal theory that we now call substantive due process. <coughs> For centuries before the Constitution was even written, English courts had declared that when government deprives people of their freedom arbitrarily, for self-interested reasons, or just because it wants to. It has denied them what the Magna Carta called the law of the land, or as in the Constitution's phrasing, due process of law. Today, this idea of substantive due process is ridiculed and rejected by conservatives and liberals alike. It should surprise none of you, then, that I think it's correct. But I want to explain how it works. First, for the government's acts to qualify as lawful, they have to comply both with formal procedures, the rules of promulgation, as some call it, and they also must include the substantive elements like regularity, generality, and fairness. Form and substance cannot be separated here, just like they can't be separated when it comes to matter. And the effort to treat substantive due process and procedural due process differently really makes no sense. Consider three examples. First, imagine Congress were to pass a bill that required, say, ship captains to keep lists of their passengers, but the president vetoes this bill. Now, having been vetoed, it doesn't become a law, but only for procedural reasons. If the president had signed it, it would have been perfectly valid. 
But because it was vetoed, it's not law. So if a harbor master comes and tries to enforce it by arresting a captain for not keeping a list of passengers, well, that arrest would be unlawful. It would lack lawful authority. The harbor master would be depriving the captain of liberty without due process of law. The same reasoning applies when the purported law fails for substantive reasons. So suppose Congress were to pass a bill and the president signs it, creating a national church for the United States. That bill would be not a law, right? Even though it complied with all the procedural steps required to make a law because it violates the First Amendment, which denies Congress power to make any such law. Since the statute could not claim the status of law, a sheriff who tried to arrest a dissenter for violating it would be depriving the dissenter of liberty without due process of law, just as in the first example. The arrest would be unlawful, not because of any procedural shortcoming, but because the sheriff lacked any duly constituted authority to deprive the dissenter of his liberty. Now, these examples are easy to follow because I've been using explicit constitutional limits. But they also apply when it comes to implicit constitutional limits that are part of the very idea of law itself. There are certain common sense restrictions on what government can do that are not enumerated in the Constitution, but are nevertheless binding. For example, a statute that requires and forbids the very same act. It would not satisfy the constitutional promise of due process of law. Or a law that says, this is not a law. Or a law that consists of nothing but meaningless gibberish and symbols. Would that be a law? A law that takes private property away from a person simply because the ruler wants it for himself would also be an arbitrary assertion of power and not a law. Now, wonderfully, there actually is a case like this from, of course, Florida, America's wackiest state. In 1986, a bank in Florida hired a detective agency to provide them with a guard to protect the bank. But then the guard conspired with others and robbed the bank. The bank sued the detective agency, saying that it was responsible for the employee's wrongdoing, but the court ruled that the guard's actions were, quote, a classic case of an employee acting outside the scope of his employment. We think the employee was plainly off on a frolic of his own and was in no way furthering the interests of his employer, end quote. In other words, the guard's authority as a bank guard only existed within the boundaries of the employment contract. So when he stepped beyond those limits, his acts were not valid. And this conclusion is obvious even though the contract contained no explicit provision against robbing the bank. <laughs> the prohibition was implicit because the whole point of the owner hiring a guard was to protect the bank against robbery. In the same way, when the court is asked to determine whether the government has violated due process of law, it must decide whether the government has exceeded the explicit or implicit limits on its authority. This is the theory of substantive due process. If the Constitution is a kind of contract among the people, then the government is an agent, a bank guard, hired for the purpose of protecting individual rights. And inherent in this employment contract is the principle that it may not violate those rights or act in ways that only serve the ruler's self-interest. As the Federalist Papers puts it, the Constitution is the instrument by which the people delegate authority to the legislature, and when the lawmakers go beyond their bounds, courts must intervene to keep them within the limits assigned to their authority by pronouncing the government's acts illegal, unenforceable, and void. This is how the courts ensure that the people's bank guard does not fall prey to temptation and rob the bank for himself. When the government dictates to us whom we may sleep with, or what hours we may work, or what wage we may earn at our jobs, the question is whether it has a legitimate reason for doing so, whether what we are doing somehow harms others, in which case the government may stop us, 
or whether the government is simply taking away freedom from people who are entitled to decide for themselves. Rightly understood, the due process of law requirement bars the government from depriving us of liberty simply to engineer society as political elites desire, or simply to assert an arbitrary moral preference. Sadly, both conservatives and liberals today reject the theory of substantive due process, and the basis for their doing so is that both sides have rejected the classical liberalism of the Declaration. They no longer believe that people are fundamentally free and that government exists to protect their rights. Instead, like the progressives, both sides presume in favor of majority power and assume that rights are privileges given to the people by the government, which government can revoke when political leaders think doing so is a good idea. Not long ago, I heard a, an interview with Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer. He was asked what he thought was the most important part of the Constitution, and his answer was, Democracy, a word that appears nowhere in the Constitution of the United States. The Constitution's first line says that liberty is a blessing. It doesn't say the same thing about government or about democracy. Very often, even in this city, you see beautiful signs, beautifully made, that say, in the copy, the, the calligraphy on the Constitution that says, we the people, leaving out the most important part of that sentence, which is the people of the United States. What was important about, that, about the preamble was that it was announcing an, the authority of the nation as opposed to the states. But we take out of the United States in order to emphasize this fetish for democracy that we have today. Chief Justice William Rehnquist wrote that the Constitution's safeguards for individual liberty take on a generalized moral rightness or goodness simply because they have been incorporated into a constitution by the people and not because of any intrinsic worth, end quote. Robert Bork declared that in wide areas of life, majorities are entitled to rule if they wish simply because they are majorities and that any right not listed in the Constitution simply is not a right. Liberal professor Cass Sunstein writes that the private or voluntary sphere is actually itself a creation of law which government can expand or contract to suit social needs. Professor Lawrence Tribe declares that there really is no such thing as natural liberty because society creates freedom. So, quote, there is no neutral natural order of things. So freedom of contract and property is an illusion, end quote. Two years ago, Salon.com writer Matthew Iglesias defended President Obama's outrageous you didn't build that statement by asserting that, quote, the real world of human practice, or the real world human practice of property rights has very little to do with the idea of legitimate ownership or rights. Instead, quote, we should define a set of property rights that on a forward-looking basis are likely to lead to human prosperity. Who is this we? The elevation of the power of the majority over the rights of the individual, the basic assumption that people are not free unless we say so, is now so commonplace that we hardly notice how extreme a proposition it really is. It is contrary to the foundations of our constitutional system. It betrays not only the principles articulated by the founders, but the constitutional rebirth that was announced in the 14th Amendment. It assumes that no person is born free, but that freedom is a gift given to each of us by the government's whim. It ignores the conscience of the Constitution. Yet it is so prevalent an assumption today that government routinely restricts the individual's right to use private property, to run a business, to ingest drugs, to possess a firearm, to support political candidates, to choose their own cars, their own schools, their own spouses, their own medical insurance, and even their own light bulbs, all in the name of democracy. 
1893, the elderly Frederick Douglass spoke out against the rising tide of mob rule in the South. After the Union had abandoned reconstruction efforts to make good the promises of the 14th Amendment. He was asked to speak on the relation between the races and the 74-year-old Douglas said, quote, there is no Negro problem. The problem is whether the American people have loyalty enough, honor enough, patriotism enough to live up to their own constitution, end quote. Today, we still have not lived up to our own constitution. We can begin only by respecting the principle that people are basically entitled to liberty unless and until they harm others and recognizing that democracy is valid only so long as it respects individual freedom. These principles articulated in the Declaration are the conscience of the Constitution, and we can remain faithful to our law only by heeding that conscience. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Tim, for that spirited defense of the Constitution and its conscience. We're now going to have some comments from Professor Hadley Arcus, also an old friend. Uh, he has been a member of the uh, Amherst College faculty since 1966, and since 1987, he's been the Edward Ney Professor of Jurisprudence. He's written five books for, with Princeton University Press, uh, including um, First Things and Beyond the Constitution and the, reward, the Return of George Sutherland. But his most recent books uh, have been with the Cambridge University Press, including Natural Rights and the Right to Choose in 2002 and Constitutional Illusions and Anchoring Truths, the Touchstone of the Natural Law in 2010. His articles have appeared in professional journals uh, he's uh, also written uh, often for popular uh, publications like the Wall Street Journal, the Weekly Standard, National Review, and so on. Um, he's been a contributor also to First Things, a journal that took its name from the book by that title. And for eight years, he wrote a column for Crisis Magazine under the title of Life Watch. Uh, Professor Arcus uh, has been a, the founder at Amherst of the Committee for the American Founding, a group of alumni and students seeking to preserve at Amherst the doctrines of natural rights taught by the American founders in Lincoln. That uh, interest has been carried on over now to the founding of a new center for the jurisprudence of natural law right here in Washington. It's called the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights and the American Founding. Professor Arcus has drawn uh, to this uh, project, a cluster of accomplished federal judges who have wanted to get a firmer hold on the natural law and brought them together with some gifted teachers of philosophy and law. The purpose of this new James Wilson Institute is to teach anew to lawyers, judges, and students those principles of law that furnish the guide to the American founders as they set about framing the Constitution. Please welcome Professor Hadley Arcus. Thanks for that fine introduction. Of, of, take me other minute. Uh, Tim reminds me uh, that when Barack Obama was elected president, the night he was elected, he was at a throng in my hometown of Chicago. And the next day, Jim Stoner wrote to me from LSU. Did you sit, notice he said, 221? We've built the country, Calistan by Calistan, by 221 years. In contradistinction, Lincoln said at Gettysburg, four score and seven years ago, 
Barack Obama countered the beginning of the, of the country with the Constitution, 1787. For Lincoln, it went back to 1776. The, the regime began with the Declaration of Independence that articulated the first principle, from which, from which everything followed. I have to confess to you, ladies and gentlemen, that I, I have trouble saying no to Roger over the years. And I'm glad he lured me. I'm almost glad he's not selling insurance. But um, <laughs> I'm, he lured me. And I'm so glad, because he gave me the chance to read Tim's fine new book. I used to say that my favorite epistemologist was Lou Costello. <laughs> because in one of their famous bits, uh, Abbott had come up with a fine idea. And Costello said, that's an excellent thought. I was just going to think of it myself. <laughs> Roger and I have friends who could go for two weeks on that line. Uh, this, was a, this is an excellent book. I was just going to write it myself. <laughs> I should have, and, and people who know my writings, I suspect, could have read this and thought, with the exception of the voice, thought they might have been reading me, perhaps until page 90. Um, but I suspect that Roger invited me because he knew that Tim and I coincided in so many ways in the defense of natural rights, the defense of Rufus Peckham in the Lochner case, uh, even in our willingness to clash with some of our friends doing conservative jurisprudence and their dismissal of uh, substantive due process. Uh, Tim has found some marvelous sources in the 19th century that I hadn't seen. I'll be drawing on this book. Uh, it's, this book should be in everyone's library. Uh, but there are differences, and I thought I'd try something different. I thought I might come, the differences might come out in a more interesting way if I sought rather to show how I might reinforce Tim from a different angle as I took matters to the root. And in that respect, some of my friends will recognize this, uh, I would say it's never out of season to recall James Wilson's line that we didn't bring forth this government and this constitution for the sake of inventing new rights, but for the sake of securing and enlarging those rights we already have by nature. Blackstone had said that when we enter civil society, we surrender, we give up the bulk of those, those rights, those unrestricted rights we had in the state of nature, including our liberty to do mischief, to which Wilson famously said, when did you ever have the liberty to do mischief? When did you ever have, as Lincoln would later say, the right to do a wrong? Those laws that, that barred you from raping and murdering do not bar you from anything you ever had a right to do. So when the question was raised, what rights do we give up on entering under this new constitution, the, the answer tendered by the Federalists was none. Hamilton said in the Federalist 84, here the people surrender nothing. It was not the purpose of this project to give up our natural rights. In which case, what was the rationale for attaching a codicil, listing all those rights we reserved against the government we're not giving up, unless you're implying now that you were indeed giving up the corpus of your natural rights on entering under this government? You may recall Theodore Cedric during that original debate over the Bill of Rights saying, well, why didn't you? What, why do you think that in a republic, in a regime of freedom, you don't have the right to speak or assemble or pub? Why don't you specify my right to get up in the morning, my right to walk down the street? And part of the concern here is that the Bill of Rights would have a truncating effect on our rights. It would impart the sense that the rights written down were far more important than the rights we neglected to write down. Or it would impart the sense that we received those rights through the positive law. Something you detect when you hear people say, those rights I have through the First Amendment. 
as though in the absence of that amendment, you wouldn't have had those rights. Uh, that concern has not been dislodged by, if, even by the Ninth Amendment. So if we ask people, do we have a right not to be subjected to wage price controls? Well, that's not part of anything restricted or reserved in the, in the Bill of Rights. So it must be part of those residual powers that belong to the government to enact things of that kind. The understanding of natural rights runs well beyond anything set down in a list. Even that the familiar rubrics of life, liberty, property don't really mark off things to be protected. The natural right to life did not mean a life, right to life everlasting or that the community may not put us in harm's way in the defense of the community or even use capital punishment. Our liberty is restricted in any law, including the laws that put up traffic lights. Our property is taken in taxation. The question in every case is whether our lives may be taken, our freedom restricted, our property taken in taxation with or without justification. I'm constrained one day from walking to our apartment on Cathedral Avenue because the fire department is fighting a fire. My liberty has been impeded. My natural rights, my constitutional rights have not been violated. There's a patent justification for that restriction. Well, when we understand the problem in this way, we begin with the premise that those beings who can give and understand reasons over matters in right and wrong have a presumptive claim to all dimensions of their freedom, including the freedom to make a living at an ordinary calling like shining shoes or braiding hair to pick a couple of points that our friend Clint Bullock has litigated, right? The burden of justification falls to the government when it would restrict our freedoms in any domain. And so the discipline of natural rights is not a discipline of fastening on objects that we're protecting, but testing in a demanding way the justifications that are offered for the restriction of our freedom in any domain. My late friend Bob Bork, when he was a judge, um, extended the protections of the First Amendment to an artist doing sculpture. But that's a stretch for the First Amendment. First Amendment was meant to protect political speech, not sculpture. But it made far more sense in Sedgwick's term to say, this doesn't have to be sculpture, it doesn't have to be speech. You have a presumptive claim to all dimensions of your freedom with the burden of justification flowing to the government. But Tim, as Tim recognizes, to put that understanding in place already puts us at odds with our friends doing conservative jurisprudence who have made themselves, up, themselves operational relativists precisely because they've come to share the skepticism of Justice Holmes that there are indeed these canons of reason that form a discipline of judgment. So a central concern of Tim's and mine is with a tendency on the part of key figures in the conservative movement including some of, some of our friends, to treat moral argument and natural rights as simply expressions of taste or subjective feelings, as matters of likes and dislikes. So George Sutherland could unfold a powerful argument laying out the reasons in principle against wage price control, even if you want to claim they work, laying out the reasons in principle against wage price controls. And judges like Hugo Black would later come back and say, oh, that means he doesn't like minimum wage laws. He doesn't like them. Okay. Um, our friends have been dubious about the notion of substantive due process because that implies we're testing the justification for these laws by some test of reason, some principles of moral judgment. My late friend Bob Bork used to say that when a judge invokes natural justice or moral principles to test the rightness or justification for any act, 
He's simply looking inside himself. He's consulting his gastrointestinal tract. <clears throat> and as Tim, Tim points out, this is where left meets right. So that in a line of liberals from Justice Holmes through John Hart, Eli could deny that there is, as Eli wrote, a discoverable and objectively valid set of moral principles to guide our constitutional discourse. In radical contrast, we have founders like James Wilson saying, a Blackstone had it wrong when he denied that the laws can incorporate a principle of revolution. Those laws were settled, revolution was unsettling. But Wilson said, no, the law in America will in fact incorporate a principle of revolution because the law in America begins with the possibility that that could be a wrongful law. There could be something passed with all the trappings of legality but wanting in the substance of lawfulness. But that in turn implies that we have access to a body of principles outside the positive law by which we're going to measure the positive law. Now, Justice Scalia rightly suggests that the Constitution did not begin with the statement, we, the judges of the United States, hereby ration out to people the areas in which they may legislate for themselves. He sees the discipline of judging as constraining the judges for the sake of leaving more issues to be decided by the people themselves or their elected agents by deliberating in the arena of politics and making judgments with majorities. But as Tim points out, Scalia and the conservative positivists do not seem clear about the ground of principle on which the deciding majority claims its right to rule. So as Tim remarks, their appeal to the value of democracy rests on no foundations. By their own confession, it is a baseless, arbitrary, emotional preference. The critical point made by Tim here is that these people detach the vote of a majority from the anchoring moral principle that furnishes not only its justification, but its limit. Now, that observation that Tim makes on page 118, I would bring back as a corrective to what Tim himself says on page one, when he remarked that we have two contending principles, the right of the individual to be free and the power of the majority to make rules. See, what, is, what may he be leaving out there in that initial statement is precisely the ground of principle that explains them both and marks their moral limits. So as, as Lincoln explained in his first inaugural address, the rule of the majority is not a principle. It's the inference from a deeper principle. It's the only practical arrangement compatible with the principle of government by consent. But it is a majority, as he understood, not free to decide anything, everything. A majority that understands that it too may not have a right to do a wrong. There are certain things it may not be free to order in its name as a ruling majority. That understanding finds its, its source in the very notion of the human person himself, a moral agent, that creature who's fitted by nature for the rule of law because he's the only creature who can give and understand reasons over matters of right and wrong. I think back to a moment to Lincoln in the Cooper Union speech when he's recalling those black slaves who did not throw in with John Brown. He says, as ignorant as they were, as unlettered as they were, they could see that the schemes of this crazy white man were not going to conduce to their well-being. So they may not have been lettered, but, but they could, but uh, they may have been educated, 
but they could reason about the grounds of their well-being and the well-being of others. They did not deserve to be annexed to the purposes of other men without their consent. So we might say that slave in his unlettered state had the capacity to give and understand reasons over matters of right and wrong. He may grasp with Lincoln and Aquinas that he couldn't coherently claim the right to do a wrong. Uh, he understands that when he says that something is wrong, that it's wrong, say, to torture an infant, he says with the moral logic that it would be wrong for anyone, for everyone, that anyone may rightly be restrained from doing that. He cannot say it is wrong and that someone has the right to choose it. So he understands then that there are serious limits on what he can rightly command in the name of his freedom. And precisely the same way, the ruling majorities composed of free men need to recognize the things they can never rightly command in the name of their standing as a ruling majority. But once those points are in place, this is a line I'd offered to Tim, it becomes clear that Tim himself can't really be arguing this book for liberty, liberty, unqualified by any moral shadings or moral meanings. For on his own terms, I think we'd insist on rightful liberty, on the freedom to do only things we are rightfully free to do, the liberty we claim is the liberty directed to a rightful end, not the liberty of a criminal enterprise. So Tim himself makes a point of that culminating line of the Declaration of Independence when the drafter said, we make the claim here for the right of this independent states to do the kinds of things that independent states may of right do. Not a right to do anything. And so just in the way that our friends may give a radically incomplete account of, of when they detach democracy from its moral framework, I'd suggest that Tim could be giving an incomplete account of his own project when he says that the end of the regime is fostering liberty. Because as I read him, the foster, it's the fostering of morally justified liberty directed to rightful ends. But once we add that moral dimension to what we're saying, we might as aptly say that the liberty of moral agents is the predicate of this regime. And the purpose of this regime, committed to the protection of natural rights, is the purpose of leading a just and morally defensible life, conducted in a defensible way, directed to morally justified ends. Okay? But there's a turn later in the book when Tim may not only be at odds with me, but odds with the argument he's put in place. Because when he turns to Romer versus Evans and Lawrence versus Texas, the cases dealing with homosexuality he suddenly sounds a bit like Hugo Black, reducing the arguments he opposes to simple likes or dislikes, because he seems to channel Justice Kennedy by insisting that the laws that cast an adverse judgment on the homosexual life are simply imposing subjective preferences on the citizenry. That is, he may begin by withdrawing from people on the other side the prospect that they may have reasons, reasons for their judgments. Now, I had a peripheral involvement in Romer versus Evans, and that case creates a real conflict for libertarians. Because in Colorado, the constitutional amendment simply barred those statutes that forbade discriminations based on sexual orientation. Now, those statutes have a real problem of coherence in the first place. But the policy here was one of letting people honor their own understanding of sexuality in their own private enclave. So if you want a gay bar, you can have a gay bar. And if someone doesn't want to rent rooms to a gay couple, well, that's his right as well. And so in the words of Justice Kennedy, these people ask why those who are averse to the homosexual life can't seek autonomy for themselves as well to honor their own moral understandings within their own private lives. 
Now, libertarians are usually averse to these laws that impose restrictions on the freedom of private employers to hire and fire by their own criteria. And if they employ the harm principle, and mean by the harm principle material harms, they'll ask, what real harm was done when a man refused to bake a cake or a couple had moral reservations and refused to take pictures, lending their approval to a same-sex wedding? Our friend Jean Volokh, a libertarian, defended the right of the Huguenins not to be compelled to take those pictures. But here, my libertarian friends run into the conviction of gays holding to the logic of morals. They think that something truly wrong is done by people who treat their sexuality and their wedding as less than legitimate. And so the logic of morals kicks in. Remember, as Lincoln said, if slavery were right, all words against it would be wrong and could rightly be swept aside. If I conceded that we're right, I could concede the right to screen the abolitionist literature from the Federalist mail. So the gay activists insist that these people who refuse to recognize them have done something wrongful. They must be stamped as wrongdoers and receive some kind of penalty. So if Catholic charities will not place children for adoption with gay or lesbian parents, well, tant pis. They may have to go out of business. But I've reached my conclusion with by just going back for a moment to Lincoln. Lincoln said that the Declaration of Independence was the one hard nut to crack for someone who would change this regime and turn a Republican government into a despotism. If we'd have to find some way of striking at that principle that marked the character of this regime, all men are created equal. For that time, and now especially for ours, the hard nut to crack is that question that John Paul II called the question of the human person. Who is the bearer of those natural rights that we're trying to protect? James Wilson puts the question, put the question, if we have natural rights, when do they begin? And his answer was, as soon as we begin to be, which is why he says the common law casts its protection over human life from the first stirrings in the womb, as soon as we know that someone is there. Uh, do we remove whole classes of human beings from the domain of rights-bearing beings through a simple shift of labels? That's not a, per that's not a, that's not a person, that's a nigger. That's not a person, it's a, it's a fetus. Or do we bear the burden of justification in showing why any class of human beings should be shifted in a stroke outside the protections of law that are co covered for other human beings? That's the question that seems to confound people today who wish to say, say right on human dignity or human rights, but somehow remove that distinct human being in the womb from the circle of rights-bearing beings. And any formula that marks these humans as less than human will apply to many people walking around well outside the womb. And one way or another, it will be an argument for the rule of the strong to treat weakness and dependency as conditions that work to extinguish rights. It's notable that this, this was a question that Tim left quite unaddressed. And I think you can't do everything in this book, but I'd say I post it for the next move, yet it points to that question that is now the hard nut to crack. Because Tim identifies rights in this book as things protected by judges against majorities. But that glides by the fact that with cases such as Dred Scott 
and Roe versus Wade, the courts have been the engines for removing rights on a vast scale. The Dred Scott, uh, with Dred Scott, it required a national movement to elect a new administration and a Congress that would vote with majorities to counter Dred Scott, remove slavery, extend the protections of the law to the newly freed slaves. In the case of Roe versus Wade, the court in a stroke licensed the destruction of human life on a vast scale. Again, the right to life is a right not to have our lives taken without justification. But the court licensed a state of affairs in which 1.2 million small human beings may be killed each year without the need even to render a justification. Imagine 1.2 million members of a minority group could be lynched in this country while the law stands by and doesn't even require the rendering of a justification. And so there might be a slight corrective or completions of Tim's argument. You could say that the threat to natural rights emanates from courts and executives as well as from legislatures. And so the upshot is this is a regime that creates many forums and occasions in which we insist on testing the justifications made by courts as well as majorities as they wield the levers of the law. Of course, we'll argue about the principles we use to weigh justifications. But it's clear to all the participants that the argument is not to be settled by singing or dancing or, or throwing rocks. My former student, Scott Walter, was there one night in Georgetown where somebody in the audience said, Professor, is there some alternative to reason? I said, what did you want to dance? I mean, what, 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 were, you, what were you offering? Uh, everyone here seems to recognize that the argument will have to unfold with the giving and testing of reasons. And that makes sense only if there are, in fact, laws of reason, like the laws of logic, beginning with the law of contradiction. Thomas Reed once recalled Pyrrho the Elder, the, that skeptic, that ancient skeptic who denied the existence of the material world and yet chased his cook down the road one day for overdoing the roast. And as we keep discovering, even our friends who profess to deny the existence of moral truths and canons of reason find themselves forgetting their principles as they find they just can't resist joining the argument. So as a late colleague of mine once put it, they will find that they have principles they haven't even used yet. Thanks very much. <laughs> well, it's, a, it's a, a lot of stuff to respond to. Let me just say, um, in the opening pages, I do refer to the idea of the power of the majority and the liberty of the individual as hovering in mutual resistance. That phrase was the best I could come up with as an alternative to the inaccurate notion that these two principles are in conflict. Properly understood, liberty and order do fit within a comprehensive view, and that is that in our constitutional system, order arises from liberty. It, is, it, it results from the basic presumption of liberty. This is a point that Madison made in his essay on charters when he said that in other countries, charters of liberty had been granted by power, but America had set the example of charters of power granted by liberty. And that's why Wilson could say that the Constitution could incorporate a principle of revolution itself. Um, 
and we see that principle in our legal institutions in the form of the Declaration of Independence, which Jefferson referred to as the fundamental act of union of these states, right? The, the Declaration is a constitutive document of principle and of nationhood, and, and I think it incorporates the idea that properly understood order arises from liberty and not the reverse, and neither are they just two arbitrary principles that oppose each other. Um, positivism, it's funny you mentioned the, the story about the, the Greek skeptic, because I was sitting there thinking of another story, and I couldn't remember the details, but I think in Aristotle, I think he refers to a skeptic who had doubted everything to such a degree that he was reduced to not even speaking. All he could do to communicate anything was to twitch his finger. And I think modern positivists are, are very much like that. They, have, they, have, they, they begin by doubting the possibility of moral truths to such a degree that, that they end up in pure nihilism. And I think a great example of that is Judge Wilkinson's late, recent book that he just published a couple months ago um, on, on cosmic constitutional theory. And Judge Wilkinson's entire point is not to advance his constitutional theory. It's not to attack existing constitutional theories. It's to attack the idea that there can possibly be constitutional theory at all. There simply is nothing there, is his point of view. And that, I, th I think, is the skeptic twitching his finger. Um, positivism is essentially anti-law. Positivism results in the principle that there is only power. There's only assertions of power based on arbitrary personal preferences. Perhaps we, we accumulate those preferences in a democratic process, but it's still just power. It's not law. Now, obviously, where Professor Arcus and I disagree is on this idea of the right to do wrong. I do think there is a right to do wrong in the sense that moral justification for action is a broader spectrum than legal justification for stopping that action. And I think the founders understood that. Their, their great accomplishment, aside from the Declaration, right, Jefferson's great accomplishment is a statute of, relig of religious freedom for Virginia. And in defending his proposition of religious liberty, as opposed to religious tolerance, which had existed under the British Constitution, his idea is that not, he doesn't deny that there is such a thing as religious truth. It's not necessary for him to make that denial or to talk about that subject at all. His question is, is this something for government to impose? And he says the government can have, uh, have legitimate power only over such things as are entrusted to it. But it, the, the legitimate of acts of government uh, extend only thing, to things that are harmful to other people. But it neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg for my neighbor to believe that there is one god or 20 gods or no god at all. Right? So I think what the founders realized is you don't have to take the position that there is no moral truth to come to the conclusion that there are some things that government is simply not appropriately suited to address. Uh, for, and, and when we take a case like Lawrence or a case like Goodrich, you read those cases. Those courts did not dismiss the, the, the views of the defendants in those cases, of those who, who, who oppose either gay marriage or homosexuality at all. Courts did not take those lightly. They did not just ignore them or say, well, there's, there, there's, those people are stupid. The, those decisions go through the arguments that have been advanced in support of restrictions on such behavior and finds them baseless as a matter of philosophy, addresses those objections and says, for example, some people say, well, religion, I mean, marriage is to, to procreate the species, but infertile couples can be married, right? That's, that's an example of, of one of the arguments that the court goes through. So I, I agree that there, that there are moral principles. Uh, but it's not necessary, we don't result from that to the, to the proposition that government should be in charge of enforcing those principles. And we certainly don't come to the conclusion that Lawrence and Goodrich ignored the possibility of, of, of reasons for moral preferences. They, they discussed those reasons and found them rightly wanting. Um, 
the, bear, the, the boundary between those two principles, I think, is, is coercion. That's what the founders said. They said, you know, it's a, it, we have to find a line between right behavior and behavior the government can restrict, and the line we're going to draw is coercing another person. And, and that, that line, uh, that, that div division, aligns very well with the well-understood difference between sins and crimes. Sins are wrongs that you do that you suffer from and, and, and result in harm to yourself. Crimes are when you harm some other person. That's the boundary. Some cases, yeah, it's a, it's a fuzzy boundary. That's why we have a court system. And finally, on this question of, of, of courts protecting rights, I agree. There are other institutions that are supposed to protect rights. The le legislature and the president are, are, have every bit as much an obligation to ensure that their acts are constitutional and protect individual rights as do the courts. But their views have, their, their position in our constitutional system has not come under such consistent fire as the courts have. The courts are routinely regarded in today's discourse as an anti-democratic institution. They're not. The judges are chosen by the people through an indirect process like the Secretary of State is, sure. But many people choose their presidential candidate based on the judges he's likely to appoint. You mentioned Clint. Clint Bullock wrote an entire book about this, that choose your president based on the judges he's likely to appoint. So the judges are a democratic branch within this overall framework of individual rights. Thank you, Thank you Tim. Uh, that, by the way, was Aristotle, book four, chapter four of the metaphysics. <laughs> and what, what, he, what he said there was that when you're speaking to someone who, can, who is reduced to being able to say nothing um, for having offended the law of contradiction, you walk away from him because he's no better than a vegetable. <laughs> All right. Now, uh, let me uh, open the questions with one uh, that I want to put to Hadley uh, about this uh, critique that you've raised that runs through um, the natural law critique of natural rights theory. I mean, this is, is, is a longstanding uh, critique about the right to do wrong. People who argue that there is a right to do wrong never have in mind murder, rape, and robbery for that. They're talking about the kinds of things that you spoke about, uh, engaging in uh, uh, actions that are often called victimless crimes, for example, taking drugs, uh, if, you, if you will, uh, engaging a prostitute, um, or, in, in, or um, um, engaging in uh, homosexual activity. Uh, these are the things that, on a theory of good that is often tied intimately with natural law theory, would be held to be wrong. But there we have the contrast between the natural law and the natural rights theories and the need to go more deeply, like Sir W. David Ross did in his book, The Right and the Good, and the distinction between the right and the good, being able to sort out these so that you can say that you do have a right to do wrong, even though I may disagree with the wrong that you are doing, uh, as long as it does not violate the rights of me or of anyone else. How say you by way of response? Well, I was never as much enamored of that distinction as, as other people. Um, W.D. Ross in that book, um, The Right and the Good, said, yeah, we can have those, uh, this is a good pen, this is a good knife. We understand what a good knife is. When we get to a good man, we probably couldn't detach the notion of a good man from the moral definition of a good man. On that, uh, forgive me, on that action, that matter of the right to do wrong. Here, you know, I invoke Groucho's line to uh, Margaret Dumont. We said, I was fighting for her honor, which is more than she ever did, you know. Uh, I'd say, Tim, I'm fighting for your argument here. You know, the, the right to, the, no right to do wrong is, is axiomatic. That, the, when that, 
invoking of a right to do wrong comes when someone is trying to impose something on us. So we're fending off that demand. When we're fending it off, are we saying, I don't like what you're doing, in which case the answer is, but I do. Or is it, it would be wrong for you to do that, wrong for anyone in your place to do it, in which case it's ended by somebody saying, oh, I just have a right to do a wrong. Sorry, I can do this. Well, uh, but you know, on the matter of, look, and the, we, we had... We had a recognition of wrongs you may not do yourself. The courts will not uphold contracts which you contract yourself in the state of peonage, right? And we, used to, we had a logic for it, a term for it. We called them unalienable rights, things we may not even do to ourselves. If we may not do them to ourselves, we may have a hard time authoring, authorizing other people to do it. If we come to the recognition it's wrong to take a human life because of the race of the person, uh, it may be wrong even to take our own lives and then for to license a doctor to help take our lives, take our life because we're of the wrong race. I, I think it runs with, I think it does run beyond matters of, of taking life. And I, once again, this, on the matter of injury, I wasn't clear on, on maybe you know, Tim and I could have this discussion, but uh, Hobbes reminded us that the root of injury is in use, right, without justification. Uh, we may subject ourselves to pain at the hands of a surgeon. We think it's done with our permission for our own good. And the question of what counts as an injury may be something that, uh, that simply is not justified. And it may, may not be a material harm. So there are many parts of our laws today that couldn't be accounted for simply with a material harm. So again, and, and going back to your, your main point, I, 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 my own inclination is to think that once we step into the level of imposing judgments with the law, we're in the business of offering justifications for what we're imposing. We're back in the moral realm. And um, to say that I have a natural, I don't say I have a natural right that can be detached from my obligation to explain why I have that right. As for the, because I would think, Tim, I was making your argument that I think, um, as you know, Lincoln would say, we have, we have all these cattles and cattle and horse running about. Uh, they don't claim rights. We can clear them off the land. We impute rights to those beings who can give and understand reasons over matters of right and wrong. But as creatures who give and understand matters of right and wrong, they may recognize the things they don't have a right to do, and the things, things they may not claim to the freedom to do, even though they're standing as free men. Okay. Uh, now, we're going to go to the audience. Uh, please uh, raise your hand. Uh, identify yourself. Wait for the microphone to come. Identify yourself. And... Um, uh, any um, affiliation you may have. And I'm going to be directing the people with the microphones to the next question while your question is being asked or answered in the interest of saving time. So, let, uh, you, sir, you were right up there with this gentleman, this Andy Hawks, I believe. My name's Andy Hawks. I'm a local attorney. And my question, which I'll direct to Mr. Sanderfer, but welcome comments by the panel, is about the citizenship clause of the 14th Amendment. Clearly, a state can't deny citizenship to someone who is recognized as a citizen under the 14th Amendment. But could a state expand citizenship? For example, suppose Texas changed its constitution to give Texas citizenship to illegal aliens who graduate from a Texas high school or to fetuses that are viable outside the womb. Would the citizenship clause preclude that? 
Uh, my, my view is yes. I believe states lack any authority whatsoever to determine citizenship. That determination is made for them by the federal government, according to the 14th Amendment, which says that all people born are naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. So it's it, the Constitution, in fact, determines who citizens are. The federal government can't even change that. So no, I don't believe states have any authority whatsoever to regulate citizenship, either to deny or expand. Um, this gentleman right here. Uh, Could I see a hand on this side, please? Okay, up, up there in the back. Bill Klein, I, I, for the purpose of this discussion, the relevant thing is I'm a retired soldier. I'm curious to know if there are hierarchies of values or rights. And what I have in mind particularly, I get in arguments with friends all the time about what's the highest value we have. I think you could say rights too. And they usually come up with saying life is. I come up with the idea that liberty is the highest value. And my argument is I'm expected when I was on active duty as a soldier to give my life for your liberty. So which is the highest value? And I think that may get to your abortion question because I think the, the most difficult issue on whether life or liberty or higher values has to do with the, whether a woman has the right to totally control what is going on inside her own body versus the life of a fetus. And it, it gets very awkward. But I'm curious particularly about the idea are there hierarchies in these things? In my view, yes, there certainly are hierarchies of values. I, uh, with regard to hierarchies of rights, I, I, have, a I have a difficult okay. time answering that question out of any context because typically what you find is that it's not so much a, a difference between my right to you know, my right to, to, to play my stereo loud and your right to, to have a quiet neighborhood, usually what you find is an invalid right in, in some sort, in, in alleged problems of that sort. But as far as hierarchies of values, absolutely, I think there are. Um, and uh, again, invoke Aristotle, I, I agree that the, the highest value is life, but life not of any particular individual, but life of, the, the, the flourishing life of, that is, this is hard to articulate, uh, Life is, the, life is the standard of moral value, but when we speak of, of life, we're talking about in the context of your entire lifespan, not your life at any particular moment. So when we say that a soldier is fighting for liberty, he's sacrificing his life, that's because life in the alternative, life under the rule of the invading uh, uh, tyrant, for example, would be unbearable. So... He's, he, in a sense, he is fighting for life even while giving up his life because he would prefer that, he would prefer that kind of life than the life under Hitler or Stalin or what have you. Well, there's, um, it used to be said that there's an axiology here that you need life before you can acquire liberty, exercise liberty, and you need liberty before you can acquire property. On the matter of the... the, the um, Lincoln had this uh, fragment he wrote for himself imagining himself engaged in a conversation with an owner of slaves. Why are you justifying enslaving the black man? Is it because uh, he's less intelligent than you? Beware, the next white man who comes along more intelligent than you may rightly enslave you. Is because he's darker? Beware again. The next white man who comes along with a complexion even lighter than yours may, ensla may enslave you. It's simply principle reasoning. And that's all that's used on the question of, the, of, of abortion. Why is that offspring in the womb anything less than human? Doesn't speak yet, neither do deaf mutes doesn't have arms or legs, other people lose arms or legs in the course of their lives without losing anything necessary to their standing as human beings to receive the protections of the law. Once you have that, all you've established is, if it's human being, people of ordinary, fo ordinary folk understand that people don't become more human as they become older, as they become taller, 
that the murder of a child is every bit as much a homicide as the murder of an older person. And so the question is, once you're in that, 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 on that axis, you understand that you can still take the life of that child in the womb, but the, the, the reasons you have to bring forth should be at least as compelling as the reasons you bring forth to justify the taking of other human lives. Listening to this discussion, I'm prompted to ask, is there a metaphysician in the house? <laughs> on, on this, I should probably say just a few words on abortion because it, it keeps coming up. I don't, and I, I mean, this, I think it's outside the scope because my point in my book is to argue that this kind of reasoning has a legitimate place in, the, in jurisprudence, which alone is a contentious thesis. Um, and that's the point that I was trying to make. I, however, do differ from Professor Arcus. I don't believe that anything possessing human DNA is entitled to a right to life. I don't believe that a single-celled or a double-celled uh, entity that has no mind is entitled to a right to life that is equal to or perhaps superior to the right of the mother. And so I do believe that, there, that the Constitution does protect a woman's right to choose. That's my personal view. Um, but I don't think it's it's relevant to the book, so I don't really get into it in the book. Oh, I think, this is an I think, I think it is. I this think is an is. area where libertarians do disagree. Yeah. Um, and, um, and it brings us back to what I take to be one of the ultimate questions in this area, namely, uh, is there a right to suicide, or do we follow the British rule of old, namely criminalize suicide? Which, of course, was not very effective as a remedy. Um, up there. It's, 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 uh, uh, yeah. yeah, I'm uh, Ernest. Um, I go to Georgetown Law. Um, so uh, it's very easy to talk about the Constitution in very broad strokes in the modern day. Um, with the conscience of the Constitution coming from 1776, it's interesting to look at this from the perspective of federalism, right? The limits on state power as opposed to federal power, uh, there's a very great difference. And, you know, when we talk about a lot of the limitations on governments or, or, or rights that people have, you know, many states uh, were able to limit those rights far more freely than the federal government. And the Constitution, of course, only applies to the federal government. And there are some limitations on the states, but they're, they're few uh, and, and enumerated. And um, I was just wondering, you know, this, this development, you know, when I learned First Amendment speech, they skip right from the Alien Sedition Acts to the Progressive Era, right? And they talk about fire in a crowded theater. And that's the First Amendment. And, that, you know, it's only incorporated after the 14th Amendment is passed. And so the country has evolved to have this federalism that recognizes rights and applies it to the states and perhaps promotes freedom overall. But throughout this whole discussion, many very interesting, it was interesting to hear no real distinction in principle between the rights that a state government has versus a federal government. When they're both governments, they both have power. And I was wondering um, where in principle the difference is and why one of them has more rights than the other or more authority than the other, more justification than the other to infringe on your rights. Well, Tim, I, at, the very, at the Constitutional Convention itself, there was that famous uh, colloquy between Roger Sherman and James Madison when Sherman said, we will have done all of our work if we simply strengthen the power of the national government in foreign policy and in, in commerce. And Madison says, oh, no, no. Uh, it was the insecurity of private rights within the states, think of canceling debts, that had more to do with bringing out this, this, this convention as anything else. You're simply treating the problems in the confederal aspect. And there was a recognition that there's, there's Hamilton and others said those smaller states are more subject to 
dominated, being dominated by local factions. At a certain point, there would be an advantage, such as the contracts clause, be able to appeal outside the terrain of that local government to more distant authority. Well, today, you know, you see the same, uh, a local, we say people aren't relativists where they live. The local government passes a, a statute to bar topless dancing or pornographic bookstores or uh, video stores. So where do the owners go? They go to a federal court to annex to their side a more libertarian body of law that would offset that local tyranny that has imposed those restrictions on them. So you could say, this was there from the very beginning, and what you've had, you could, we could argue, is simply a, a fleshing out, enlargement of that with the 14th Amendment. But look, as you say, the court, the court did not start enforcing the 14th, uh, First Amendment against the states until the 1920s, right, with the Goodloe case. And, after, and up to that point, and the, um, uh, it wasn't until 1964 that they intimated that the Alien and Sedition Acts were unconstitutional. What defeated those acts? The election of 1800. And so Scalia's point would be they created a structure to secure rights. They didn't depend on the courts. What secured those rights were a, a citizenry armed with a vote who could punish and throw out those politicians they saw as threats to those rights. Uh, well, that's uh, true. I think it's also important to remember that one of the Jeffersonians' big complaints that led to the Revolution of 1800 was that courts were being too deferential to government power. They complained that uh, the Federalist stacked judiciary was allowing the government to violate the Constitution, and for that reason, it was largely uh, um, futile to try and challenge it, some of these things in courts. And, and you know, you're, but you're right about Madison's concern about power in states. Remember that when he left the Constitutional Convention, he considered himself as only having half succeeded. At best, he thought that the failure to incorporate a provision that would allow the federal government to negative state laws was a fatal weakness in the Constitution. But as far as the Bill of Rights protecting, not applying to the states, uh, that well, your question basically is why the Civil War occurred, right? Because these questions were left ambiguous at the time of the Constitution being written and over the coming decades. And the people like John Quincy Adams, um, who would later go on to formulate the anti-slavery constitutional theory, rejected Barron versus Baltimore from the very beginning. The uh, Akhil Lamar in his books calls them the Barron contrarians. They were the people who thought that the Bill of Rights ought to apply to the states, just as to the federal government. Nothing in the Bill of Rights explicitly requires that they be limited to the federal government, except the First Amendment's reference to Congress shall, which of course then implies that those amendments lacking such a predicate should apply to the states because they don't have that reference. So, and, there, and this, it was of course to overturn Barron, Barron versus Baltimore and to perfect that view of the Constitution that the 14th Amendment was written. Our friend, our friend Richard Epstein, the, the line about Richard is that Professor Epstein thinks that the First Amendment should end after Congress shall make no law. <laughs> Does, uh, does that mean that uh, establishment churches as late as 1836 were unconstitutional? I'll give you a Mars answer to it, which is, <laughs> he says that at the time, that of course the Constitution, yes, the Constitution was written, the First Amendment was written at a time when the eradication of state-enforced established churches was not possible. And so the 14th Amendment was written in such a way as to accommodate state-established uh, churches. And what Amar argues is that by the time the 14th Amendment comes along, the idea of an individual's right not to be subjected to a state-enforced church was so well accepted that it should be read through the 14th Amendment's due process clause and other clauses. It would have been defeated politically. That's an interesting argument. Um, David. 
Um, oh, there is a metaphysician in the house. That's, that's sort of. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm David Kelly. I'm um, with the Atlas Society. Um, and I have a question for Tim about yeah, the burden of your talk. You had you drew a distinction between um, state, the, the issue of what's the ultimate locus of sovereignty and citizenship, the state or the, or the nation. Um, and then also the distinction between, uh, or difference, do rights um, <clears throat> belong to people and are, and governments set up with, uh, to do only with that which they've been uh, authorized to do, uh, or are rights given by the state? And you were linking those two things in a way that I didn't quite understand. They, philosophic in terms of political philosophy, right? It, they seem like somewhat distinct issues. They, that's a very good question. I appreciate you bringing it up. Um, the link between those two, the, the, the link between the, the location of sovereignty and the limits on sovereignty is the Declaration of Independence. And that, that's why that's such a, a, a crucial document, and, and it's so crucial to see it as a legal document, as part of the Constitution of the United States, because it creates... It, as a contract, it creates an entity, a corporate entity, the, the United States uh, of America, on certain terms. Just like if you were to create a corporation that says this corporation exists for the purpose of selling widgets and they start selling Sontaineners instead, you would say they have no corporate authority to do that. The same thing with the Constitution. The Constitution creates the people of the United States for certain enumerated purposes. And when it and outside those purposes, then the states have authority. So it it at the same time, what the Declaration does is creates a union, and the which the Constitution perfects by declaring the limits on the, that union. Now we mentioned the the Constitutional Convention. There was not just the, the colloquy between Madison, and, uh, but 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 um, there's a moment when when uh, Wilson is debating with I believe it was Luther Martin over whether the states are independent and sovereign of themselves. And Wilson overwhelmingly wins this argument. And one thing he points out is the states were never sovereign, ever, That's in right. history. Right. They, they declared independence unitedly, not separately, and they did not declare themselves separate from one another when they declared independence. The Declaration says these united colonies are free and independent states, and they are united only in their collective capacity. That if they were so He says if they were sovereigns, then they were deaf because they could never conduct foreign uh, 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 commerce. They were dumb because they could not send ambassadors, right? So th that was the principle that won out in, in Philadelphia. That was the principle that won out in the ratification debates. And that was the principle that was denied and rejected and ignored by the secessionists in the 1830s and our own secessionists today, is that the United States is, an, is a nation of itself made up of, by the people so that the states have no authority to leave the government because they have no authority to intervene between the people and their federal government. Hi, Tim. This is Paul Jossi. Um, thank you for writing the book. I look forward to reading it. Um, if I remember the, the, the history correctly, one of Jefferson's original grievances against the empire was, uh, was slavery. Uh, and, right. And, and this was actually taken out uh, to when, the, when the original document was you know, enacted whatever verb is correct there. So I was wondering if you would, if you would address this in your book, and uh, is this a case of a, of a, of a strong, powerful mi minority uh, overtaking the language that um, maybe we would all have preferred being there? You could write volumes on why the language against slavery got taken out of the Declaration, because it's very telling about what the founders were doing and what they, what they were capable of doing, and about Jefferson's own personality. Um, as, a, as, a, as a politician, and a very, very successful politician, Jefferson knew when he was beat, and he was beat at the, at the, when it came to the Declaration of Independence. 
his language in that draft announcing slavery is very emphatic. It's the only place in his draft where he writes in all capital letters um, denouncing slavery and underlines denouncing slavery. That section was taken out, he said, at the insistence of Southern states. But Jefferson also, he was also very, he, his character deserves this criticism that he was unwilling to put himself out on a limb for ending slavery the way the lot of his neighbors and, and friends were, especially late in life. Jefferson was comfortable saying, well, that's, that's for future generations to, to worry about. But as Lincoln said so famously, all honor to Jefferson, who had the presence of mind to insert into a merely revolutionary document, a timeless truth applicable to all men and all times. I love that phrase, merely revolutionary document, because had it lacked the language about all men are created equal endowed with certain rights, it would have been merely a revolutionary document. Uh, Paul? Paul Kaminar, uh, an attorney and uh, Tim, I'm looking forward to reading your book, and also I hope to see you back here again, perhaps talking about the origination clause case you have in the D.C. Circuit. Uh, uh, just a uh, question with respect to state sovereignty and national sovereignty. Um, how would you square that uh, with the uh, argument well made by Professor Randy Barnett at the Federalist uh, Convention in his debate with uh, Judge Harvey Wilkinson that it's, it's the people uh, that, that are sovereign? Uh, um, and, and, and related to that, in terms of the Declaration of Independence, uh, how would you compare that with the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights? Uh, with regard to the sovereignty of the people, I think, I think my, my argument rests quintessentially on the sovereignty of the people as opposed to the sovereignty of the government. But that sovereignty, understood in terms of the Declaration, is limited inherently. The people have the sovereign authority only to do those things which they have the right to do. So people have no sovereign authority, for example, to institute a government that simply steals property from some people and gives it to others because they have no authority to do that themselves, so they can't delegate that authority to their government. Um, I think that I think the Constitution is well understood on that, and actually, the man when it came to the sovereignty of the people and and these principles is 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 James Wilson, um, who is a, a brilliant founding father that who is sadly does not receive the kind of attention that he deserves today. Um, your second question was about. Um, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Well, uh, that purports to be an aspirational document only. It's not a legal document. Some of it's okay. Some of it's really stupid. It, de it declares everybody has a right to paid vacations, which, among other things, as Tom Palmer has, has very well put out in, in, um, pointed out in, in his essays on, on rights um, in another book published by Cato, um, those, the, the, rights are, the alleged rights in the Declaration of Human Rights are inconsistent with one another. If you have the right to paid vacation but also the right to medical care, what do you do if your doctor goes on vacation? Those, those rights cannot be reconciled, and that's, why, that's an indication that it rests on a faulty understanding of the idea of rights. Uh, the next to last question. Jay Blattner, Cato Institute. To go back to your argument uh, about why states can't secede, that makes a lot of sense if you're a positivist that the states were never sovereign, therefore they can never declare uh, that they are. They're, since they never had sovereignty to begin with, they cannot reclaim it from the federal government. But if you're a natural law theorist, which I think you are, since the American people had the right to declare independence from Britain, don't the Texan people have the right to declare independence from America? And didn't the South Carolinans have the right to declare independence from the United States? So don't you have to be a positivist if you're going to say that the Confederates were wrong? 
No, no. Um, so I, I lay all this out in my article, How Libertarians Ought to Think About the Civil War, um, which I urge you all to, to download and read. Um, the answer to your question is sorta, and that is, yes, absolutely the people have the right to revolution. And, uh, and the Declaration of Independence lays out the, the contours of that right. Um, and, and that is, when a long train of abuses pursuing invariably the same object evince a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, they have the right, they have the duty to throw off such government. And that is absolutely true, and Lincoln never denied it in 1861. The problem is that defenders of secession blur the distinction between secession and revolution. What we've been talking about is the right of revolution, the right to throw off tyrannical government that is aggressive against your, your freedoms. The, right to, the purported right to secession is the claim that a state has the legal authority, consistently with the Constitution of the United States, to unilaterally leave the Union. It does not have any such authority. As I lay out at length in my article, there are all sorts of reasons why that is not the case. But it's crucial to keep in mind the distinction between the individual's right of revolution and the state's purported right of secession. Remember, secession doesn't even purport to be an individual right. It purports to be a corporate right, which does not, in fact, exist. Besides, they fired first, right? Well, that's why, that is why uh, Lincoln's military response was justified. Time for just one more question right here, please. Tim, a glorious, very convincing presentation. I just was wondering, what were your personal views on the decision in the last Supreme Court that ended preclearance uh, by the federal government of the right to vote in jurisdictions that had systematically violated that right? Uh, well, the Pacific Legal Foundation participated in that case as amicus curiae. In, in our view, the Voting Rights Act, while it may have been constitutional at the time that it was, that it was written, I mean, in 1965, things were not that much different than 1865 in a lot of places because of the Republicans' abandonment of the principles of the 14th Amendment in 1877. Um, so, but while that may have been justified, it is not only no longer justified in the context of today's world, but in fact is is actually harmful to the rights of minorities. There are lots of voting technologies, for instance, that cannot be implemented in certain jurisdictions, which would eliminate disparities in voting caused by various things that just happen in the voting process, which cannot be implemented today because of the preclearance requirements. There's also obvious preferences going on within the preclearance requirements. Some jurisdictions that have the political pull to do so have obtained waivers, which other jurisdictions have not. And the formula for requiring preclearance is arbitrary in some cases. Marin County, California requires preclearance under the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Why in the world is that justified in today's world? If any of you haven't been to Marin, please come visit lovely Northern California. We can't afford to. Um, <laughs> Hadley, did you? I, yeah, I'd just like to reinforce Tim from another direction. The um, Lincoln commented on the uh, declaration from the uh, Confederate States. It begins, we the delegates of the states. He said, why this pressing out of the rights of the people? September 10th, 2001, I was on my uh, porch writing a piece for the Wall Street Journal before the world changed the next day, September 11th. The uh, conference in South Africa, UN conference, declared the inalienable right of the Palestinian people to their own state. And you think, ah, was that the Declaration of 1776 or of 1861? It couldn't have been 1776 if they're declaring the inalienable right of the Palestinian people, it was the inalienable right of the Palestinian people to an, an elected government. But that would have called into question um, the legitimacy of half the members of the United Nations. So the it had to be the 1861. 
We're simply declaring the right of a, with, with utter indifference to the nature of the regime under which they live. Though, I mean, you know, as, as Tim said, when, when, the, when we're, this country was recognized, the Brits did send ambassadors to Boston and to, to New Haven and other places. It sent one ambassador to the capital of the new place. But during the time of the Civil War, it took New York to go abroad because the treasury under Buchanan was exhausted. So it took New York to go abroad to raise money to buy arms for the Union. And who knows if Obama continues, I may want to move to Texas and, uh, and revive some this old arguments. This circles back to the first point that I made in, in response to, to your comments, and that is that properly understood order arises from liberty. A properly understood right of the people to govern themselves must be based on individual rights. The, the, the purported right of collectives to govern for themselves in disregard of individual rights simply does not exist, whether it be in Cuba or in Iran or in China or in South Carolina in 1861. I'll drink to that. Yes. All right, uh, there are restrooms on this floor, on the floor below, and on the second floor. Uh, we're now going to the George M. Yeager Conference Center for lunch. But before we do, please, a, a warm round of applause for our speakers. Oh.